0: I didn't want you guys to have to hear the genealogy twice, so I spared you just a bit this morning. We are beginning something today that we have never done before we are walking through an entire gospel account from beginning to end now during covid we did walk through mark but it was online so that doesn't count (laughs) okay this is our first time walking through a gospel account from beginning to end in person, and we just read one verse. Welcome to church this morning. For the journey ahead, we are also providing you a little resource called The Roadmap that we have at our connect table in the lobby, which is just a reading plan and resource that you can use for yourself, that you can use in community, you can use it as a house church. And it basically takes various sections throughout the gospel according to Matthew that you can spend a week in, both meditating on, slowly, and studying. And the word read is a little acronym. You know, I love acronyms like any good pastor should. And it means to read, observe, ask, and devote. So as you engage the text, you can read it, make observations, ask questions, and then devote yourself to what it is trying to communicate in terms of obedience. Now there are various synonyms for a journey. A trek, a hike, a trip, an expedition, an odyssey. Or a pilgrimage. And this experience that we are beginning today will be, in fact, all of those. All of those. And this is the main reason behind why the series is being called On the Way. It is a journey that we are going on through the story of, I would argue, the most influential and intriguing human person in all of human history across time and across the world. A first century Middle Eastern carpenter's son and Jewish rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus. But the name on the way also serves as a double entendre. It isn't just a look at the story, it is also, hopefully, a formative odyssey to uncover what Jesus came to do and what he came to teach. It is a series on the way of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the lifestyle of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus, the model of of Jesus. Because I'm convinced that if you and I want the life of Jesus, you and I have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. We have to adopt his pattern. And we have been, from the beginning of creation, destined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that being Jesus of Nazareth. To that, Here at Emmaus, this is your first time. This is great for you to hear. At Emmaus, we, hear me very clearly, have an agenda for your life. And it is Jesus' vision and agenda to become increasingly his followers, his disciples, his apprentices, and students. Adopting and practicing his way and pattern for being human in light of his mission in the world. So just know as you are here today, we have very clearly, I'm a realist, okay? Very clearly have a plan for your life, an agenda for your life. And if you are about following the way of Jesus and increasingly becoming more and more like him and are curious and open and seeking, then you will find great flourishing life and transformation in this community. If that is not what you are after, at some point, you will hit a wall and have a choice to make do I continue on the journey or do I not? But I'm letting you all know we have an agenda for your life okay this is the fine print at the very bottom of the terms and conditions <laughs> that we all never look at and then we get mad when something happens and they're like it was there in the terms and conditions you just check the box so i'm telling you now We have an agenda for your life, to become his followers and students, adopting and practicing his way and his vision and his pattern and his model for being human in light of his mission in the world, that being the renewal of all things. It isn't attending an event. It isn't building friendships. It isn't building community. It isn't feeling good about yourself. It isn't uh, consumption of religious goods. It isn't just serving the community or delivering applicable sermons or even tips for a better life. Those are all great things, but that isn't the agenda. The agenda is for your life and mine and our life to be formed by and reshaped into the way and person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this agenda, for you all to know, touches every single dimension of your person. Your thoughts, your emotions, how you respond to your emotions, your body, your desires, your perspective, your habits, your practices, your relationships, Your identity, your sexuality, your money, your time, your morals, your politics, your blind spots, your job, your sense of meaning, your life, and your death. The way and teaching of Jesus will touch every dimension of the human experience. And we are all... To be formed by his way and if you in fact want to respond to the invitation to be his student or his apprentice he will get into and touch every last spot every last dimension of your life so are you ready no one is ready you're like I don't know about this I just came for the music and a good little encouraging teaching to get through my life because it's a, it's a chaotic wreck. You know, Are you ready? Good. Some of you are lying. Let's pray. <laughs> Holy Spirit, we believe that you're here. We believe that you're active. We know that you're going to do incredible things as we journey through this gospel account. And we're grateful that you're already poking and prodding in our hearts and our minds and our life and in our bodies. So have your way among us today and in this teaching series. in your name we pray, and everyone in this room said, amen. Well done. Well done. Jesus might be the most influential person in all of human history, but Steve Jobs very well could be the most influential and innovative person within our current time with the founding of the Apple Computer Company in 1976. How many of you are alive in 76? Come on, look at those hands. You're doing it, baby. You're doing it. Some of us weren't even thought of in 76. Y'all were just singing Night Fever, you know? No one in here knows about Night Fever, but anyway. Or how about Soul Train? Y'all know about Soul Train? Oh, man. See? You guys got excited about that, man. You're like, finally, you see the older generation in this room, man. I see you. Steve Jobs founded the Apple Computer Company in 1976, and then he launched the infamous iPhone in 2007. That one man has changed at least 1.5 billion people in the world just today. If iPhone users were a country, it would be the largest country in the world. 200 million more people or 100 million more people than both China and India. I would say Steve Jobs has had quite an impact. On our world and due to his global influence and innovation not one but multiple authors have written biographies on his life yet each with a different length from a different angle and with a different purpose despite being facts about the same person that being Steve Jobs The most famous of all the biographies is by Walter Isaacson. Has anyone read Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs? It's 672 pages. It's a daunting task. And it focuses on 40 interviews with Steve Jobs. There's another biography by April McVeigh called Steve Jobs' Biography, The Life of a Visionary. That's only 145 pages, and it specifically focuses on his relationships over time. There's also Steve Jobs, The Man Who Thought Different by Kieran Blumenthal, which focuses specifically on his technological impact and innovation. And then there is a kid's biography called Steve Jobs, a kid's book about changing the world in the little series called Many Movers and Shakers by Mary Ninn. And it's a whopping 36 colorful pages. And Matthew isn't just a history of recorded events in a person's life but is in fact considered ancient biography you know only people who change the world get biographies whether for the good or for the bad and just as these biographies of steve jobs have intention for the reader they're not all the same they don't all tell the same stories they have specific intentions Matthew also has an intention for you as the reader, because it is, in fact, ancient biography. He wants us to not just read, but also to learn, to allow this account of Jesus to change, in fact, how we think and live. He has a purpose for the audience and the ones reading the text. And if it is ancient biography, which most scholars believe it to be, it implies that we are to put into action the themes, values, and directives that are gained from the life of the person being examined, that being Jesus of Nazareth. And as you will see over time when considering the whole structure of Matthew's gospel account, he isn't just taking note of facts He isn't just giving you information, but in the language of the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, Matthew is quite clearly offering a manual for discipleship for a church living as a minority group in a hostile majority culture. Matthew, in comparison to the other three gospel accounts that we have, Mark, Luke, and John, has a specific emphasis on the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus. Mark focuses on what Jesus did, the miracles of Jesus. Luke focuses on the move towards Jerusalem and the suffering servant. John focuses on the divinity of Christ. But Matthew focuses specifically on Jesus and his teachings. In fact, the whole of Matthew fits in and around five blocks of teaching throughout Jesus' ministry. The first being the famous Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5. But that isn't where we begin. We begin at Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of... Of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the first two words in the Greek of Matthew 1:1 are Biblos Geneseos. And though Greek, I do think that you might find them to be familiar words. Biblos, meaning book, where we get the, the word Bible from and geneseos meaning generation, genesis, or beginning. Scholars Davies and Allison say it could more accurately be read, the book of the new genesis wrought by Jesus the Christ. Reads a little bit differently, does it not? The book of the new genesis wrought by Jesus Christ. And at the hearing of this statement in a first-century church, all of at least the Jewish ears would have perked up and made a connection, as many of you probably are right now at the thought of the word Genesis, to the first book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the first book of the library, that being the book of Genesis. The first scenes of the drama and the story we find ourselves in, and they would have found themselves in as well. The first time that we see a reference to a genealogy in all of Scripture is in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. And it sounds oddly similar to Matthew chapter 1. Hear what it says. Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the written account Well, the NASB says, Book of Generations, of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. Notice the emphasis on the word created. It occurs three times in these two verses. Sounds similar to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, does it not? And if you read from Genesis 5 through the whole of the Old Testament and get to the end, Malachi for us in our Bible, in the Tanakh, it would be 2 Chronicles. If you get to the end, it ends on a total cliffhanger. Like the end of a show where you've got to wait a year for Netflix to release the next season. Don't you hate that? That's the problem with binge watching. You can't savor shows. I talked to someone this morning who said they literally watched a whole season of a show yesterday. What a Sabbath. Wow. The end of the, the Hebrew Scriptures ends on a cliffhanger. There is no resolution to the conflict and to the story. So what does that mean for Matthew? Something new is happening in the story matthew is saying with the birth of jesus with the coming of jesus a new epoch of history or epic is being ushered in and it's not just about israel it's that and more it's tied to the very origins of creation Jesus is now at this point, bless your soul, Amon. It's okay. It's okay. She got convicted. That's what happened. She got convicted. And Nia's gonna go share the gospel with her. <laughs> at this point, Matthew chapter 1, what we are seeing is that Jesus is becoming the climax or the pinnacle and the turning point. In the story of Israel, as well as human history, this is—dare I say—an epic way of starting a biography. You're supposed to laugh at my dad joke there. Ah, thank you. I appreciate it. In in verse one, we move on after this discovery of the the genealogy and this new Genesis to three identifiers of Jesus. This, 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 character. Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, and son of Abraham. Three separate identifiers of Jesus. Now the word Messiah is a Hebrew word meaning king or anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, and it means anointed one. The Greek is the word Christos, or the English translation, Christ. Now, Just want you to know, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's not like, it's up, Mr. Christ, you know. It's not his last name. That is a title. it's Christos in Greek, and the Hebrew is Mashiach, or anointed one. For centuries, the Jewish people had been hoping, praying, and prophesying about a Messiah, or Mashiach, who would come to rescue and deliver them from exile. An exile, they believed, to has still been in under the reign of the Roman Empire, who just took over the region about 60 years before Jesus. They are an oppressed, subservient people group to the Roman Empire, and they've been in and out of exile for centuries. And the Hebrew people have been prophesying about a Mashiach that would come and deliver them finally from exile. So Matthew is saying that Jesus is... That Messiah. He is that Mashiach. That anointed or set apart one. This is already showing us something very important and soon to be even more so important with respect to how Matthew is trying to curate this biography. Matthew interprets Jesus in light of the Old Testament and he interprets the Old Testament in light of Jesus. This is why you've got to also read the Old Testament. Because it seems as though Matthew was very familiar with the Old Testament. Now Matthew also calls him the son of David. Yes, the little boy who defeated Goliath on a flannel graph. In 1997, (laughs) did anybody grow up doing flannel graphs in Sunday school? Yeah, you hated it then, but now you're like, I kinda just, it's something nostalgic about a good flannel graph, you know? Let's bring it back, Emmaus kids, let's do some flannel graphs, right? To that point, this is a side note. Um, The other day, we had someone um, knock on our door, which doesn't happen very often, I was here at the church, and they were wanting to sell us a church directory. And I said to the person, without thinking, probably rudely, I didn't know those were still a thing. And she was very kind, yes they are, a lot of companies gone out of business, but we're still here. And and I was like, well, I don't think we need a directory, I'll be honest with you, but um, anyway, that's just a side note, not in my notes. Um, I'm just reflecting back on our childhood, you know, 80s, 90s church, man, like my in-laws still have their directory photo framed in their house, right? Some of you got grandparents and parents. They still got that 1994 photo in their living room. Some of you are like, what's a directory? You're not missing anything, I promise. So, yes, this is the, the boy, defeated Goliath. Or, if you also grew up in the, in the 90s, uh, it defeated a giant boxing pickle, if you watched VeggieTales. <laughs> Dave and the Giant Pickle. Anybody seen that before? Let me tell you something. Phil Vischer was a genius. Vegetails was fire, is fire, and will continue to be fire into the future, okay? David, some of you who didn't grow up in church are like, man, these people really need a lot of therapy. <laughs> and it's not just narcissistic leaders. It is so much more, so much more. <laughs> I'm talking about genealogy, man. We got to laugh a little bit, okay? Uh, David, though, in the Old Testament, was the archetypal messianic warrior king. He's the archetype. And not only did the Jews prophesy about an anointed one, a Messiah, but the anointed one would be like a new David. And he would come from David's family lineage. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh makes a covenant with David. There are a couple of covenants, specifically in the Old Testament. One is with David, where he promises a descendant of his rule and reign on the throne over the people of God. That someone from David's line will rule and reign on the throne over the people of God. And a house for God's dwelling and presence will be built. And this Mashiach will usher in a forever kingdom of peace, blessing, and praise God rest. And the whole of the scriptures throughout the Old Testament are prophesying about this type of Davidic character. But not only that, Matthew also calls Jesus son of Abraham, which is a title nowhere else in the scriptures, except here. Matthew takes us further back to the very first covenant in Genesis chapter 12, the father of Israel. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. The one chosen by God, Abraham and Sarah, to bring redemption, renewal, restoration, and blessing to the entire nation and cosmos. And beyond. To the nations, plural. So Jesus is not only the Mashiach and not just the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham, the one by which God chose kind of randomly in Genesis chapter 12 to bring forth renewal and redemption in a chaotic, broken, and disordered world, to bring forth blessing. And he is connecting Jesus to these three archetypal type figures in the history of Israel. And then he proves it to us with a historical record. Keep in mind, the fact that we see genealogy in this first chapter reveals to us it's historical in scope. It's a historical record. He reveals the bloodline, a family tree. Now, most of us start Matthew chapter 1, and we just skip it. We don't tell anyone. We just skip it, because we see that genealogy, and we're like, I'm not reading that. I can't even pronounce half of these words. What is this? It's boring, but it actually confirms the historical nature of the text and, oh by the way, was of gigantic importance in the ancient world and for the ancient Jewish people. And by the way, genealogies are still very important in many parts of the world today. Not for us modern Westerners, but certainly for first century Jews. Even more so because it's a royal lineage. A royal lineage. In the ancient world and again in some parts of the world today, your family shaped and shapes your identity more than just about anything else. Who you were related to, this is key, was who you were. Who your daddy was Who your grandpa was, was who you were. Whether you like that or not, that's how it was, and still is for many across the world today. Your family shaped your identity more than anything else. And this prologue in Matthew chapter one is unveiling to us what? Who Jesus is. It is revealing to us and uncovering for us the very identity of the most influential person in the history of the world, Jesus of Nazareth. So now we are going to read or try to read this genealogy. And by the end of it, I promise this, you are going to be utterly mind blown or your money back guaranteed. Okay, so buckle in, here we go. Verse two. Just take a deep breath, oh man, Lord Jesus, wow, okay. Abraham, there's a key word, first name, Abraham, fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, great name, it's my son's name, and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron and Hezron fathered Ram. By the way, if you are um, with child, this genealogy offers you plenty of names to choose from. (laughs) And if you are a young hipster family, a lot of cool young hipster type names in this genealogy that most people can't pronounce or spell, but it's cool and different. So, um, Just just a little disclaimer for you as you're thinking about naming your child. Why not Ram, you know? Why not Zerah, okay? Hezron, let's go. Um, Ram fathered Abinadab. That's even better. Uh, Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon. I don't think we know what we're doing when we're giving cool and unique names to the actual emotional uh, formation of that child over the course of elementary and middle school. Like, you're testing them for failure. Um, anyway, Salmon, or if you grew up in the South, Salmon, uh, fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered who? David the king. You're doing good. All right? Let's keep going. David fathered Solomon by her. Her doesn't even get a name. Do you know who her is? Bathsheba. Bathsheba, Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now we're seeing some conflict, some Jerry Springer type stuff in the genealogy. You're like, oh, hold up. All right, let's get into some family systems theory. There are some serious family of origin issues in the genealogy. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, and Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, I like Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, and Amon fathered Josiah, Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to where? Babylon. What was Babylon? Exile. After the deportation to Babylon, you, you hanging in so far? After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia fathered, I don't even know how to pronounce that name, fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abihud, Abihud fathered Eliakim, and Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, and Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Methan, and Methan fathered Jacob. Jacob, who fathered Joseph? the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Mashiach, the Messiah. Verse 17. So all generations, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Messiah, 14 generations. We did it. We got through it. Let's make a couple of observations. First, notice There are women, praise God, women, come on women, come on women, yes, my wife's not even in here, come on Jordan. (laughs) Notice there are women in the genealogy, which was incredibly rare, didn't happen, especially a royal genealogy, it all flowed through the paternal line. But Matthew is adding women into the genealogy, and not just women, Gentile women, foreigners, not of Jewish descent, and not just Gentile women, but women who lived rather precarious lives and had some interesting decisions, maybe not the most exemplary life, all pointing to eventually, as we just saw, Mary. So what does this mean for all of us? Not just women, but for all of us. First of all, it means women have a key role to play, an important role to play in the whole of the story of ushering in God's redemption, renewal, and restoration. We will. (laughs) But what does it mean for all of us? This means that Jesus' story is our story. Jesus' lineage is our lineage. He includes not just women, Gentile women. And if you look around the room, all of us are Gentiles. His story is our story, His lineage is our lineage. There is room for both messy people and messy Gentiles. If you're a messy person, He's invited you to be in His family tree. That's deeply radical. Considering a family lineage had to do with identity formation. He has come, Jesus, to bring the whole of creation into himself. The whole story united in him. This is, we're seeing, the unfolding of the true story of all of humanity. The vision for the cosmos. And Matthew is dragging you and I into it. You and all of your mess belong in the story as He redeems, renews, restores, and rescues. You have a role to play. I remember hearing a little line from a pastor one time, he said, Your mess can be God's message. Right? I love little one-liners like that. Let your mess be God's message. Let your brokenness be God's breakthrough. (laughs) He's invited you into it. He's invited you into that story. Second thing I want us to notice, that Matthew has been calling Jesus the Messiah, obviously. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, while in Babylonian exile, Daniel prophesies in Daniel chapter 9 that the Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Messiah, would, quote-unquote, put an end to sin. Quote-unquote, to atone for wickedness. Quote-unquote, to bring in everlasting righteousness or justice and consecrate the temple of God or the dwelling place of God or the house of God once and for all. And it would happen in the 70th grouping of seven years, or the 77s. Now, what I'm about to share with you, you're going to think it's some sort of conspiracy theory. It is not conspiracy theory. It is actually what the Bible Project calls prophetic math. So, I like prophetic math better than conspiracy theory, and you'll see how it works out, okay? Seven was a symbolic number of ancient Israel. Every seven days was what? A Sabbath. Every seven days was a Sabbath. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. And at the end of every 49 years, or seven times seven, it began a year of Jubilee. A year of total restoration and reset. No work for a year. Vacation for a year. How many of you would like a vacation for about 12 months? In Jesus' name. And all debts were forgiven. Not just college debt. I paid mine off, praise God. But all debts forgiven in the year of Jubilee. Slaves were also freed. And land would go back to its original owner. This vision is way better than a democratic republic will ever be. Way better than liberal democracy, I'll be honest. This is beautiful. So why does this matter? 70 times 7 equals 490, if you do the math. And it's been roughly... 490, 500 years since that prophecy with the birth of Jesus. And Matthew shows us, as we just read, three groupings of 14 generations. Or to use the number seven, six groupings of seven. You're tracking with me. Prophetic math. This means that with the birth of Jesus, it is the beginning of the seventh seven. This is not just a haphazard genealogy. This is deeply prophetic. Jesus is the genesis, the beginning of the jubilee of all jubilees. The dawn of the eternal Sabbath. This is why his gospel, friends, is a gospel of peace. He came to set captives free he came so those who are burdened, you and I who are burdened and heavy laden, you and I could get what? Rest. He came to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness. A new Genesis has dawned, a new beginning, and it's the beginning of the jubilee of all jubilees that will move into forever. Wow! That's just child's play. Let's keep going. Third, check this out. We're just having fun with the genealogy at this point. Obviously, there are three groups of 14 generations. And Matthew also calls Jesus son of David. Correct? In the ancient world, uh, assigning numerical significance to letters was common, or to words more specifically was common and known as gematria. Gematria. And David had a jersey number. He had a number, a significant number. A number was attached to his identity. Just how, um, when I ask you, even if you didn't play basketball, who is number 23? Michael Jordan. 23, that's Jordan. That's his number. David also had a number. Watch this. Your mind will be blown, I promise. In the ancient world, the letter D was also connected and equal to the number four. Now, there were no vowels in ancient Hebrew, so it's just DVD. But the letter V was the number six. And D, again, would be the number four. So what was David's number? Fourteen. What number is David in the lineage? Fourteen. How many generations from Abraham to David are there? Fourteen. And what generation is Jesus? Fourteen. What? <laughs> Not conspiracy theory. It's there. Jesus is the Davidic king and fulfillment of Israel's stories so far. The Messiah has come. The Davidic-like archetype has come. He is here. But that isn't all. isn't all. i close with this. When you read the last grouping of names, if you are reading carefully, you only count 13 names, 13 fathers. The text gets to Joseph, and if you notice, all it said was joseph the husband of mary which is out of place because this is a what genealogy tracing paternal or fatherly lineage where we have read over and over again fathered blank fathered blank fathered blank but we only have 13 fathers in that last grouping So Matthew is hinting at a question for us to consider this morning. Who is the 14th father? Who is the 14th father? The recreation and reformation of the entire cosmos is happening but it isn't from the outside in as the first creation story. It is quite literally from the inside out. Jesus is actually more than the long-awaited Messiah, more than the son of David, more than the son of Abraham. He is actually the eternal son of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The 14th father is Yahweh. It's Yahweh. God, in Matthew chapter 1, is entering his own story as a seed of eternal regenerative power to usher in a new creation. To turn all of history not just for the sake of the Jewish people but for all people across time, across culture, across gender lines. He is inviting all of us into his story and his hand is on it. And he's inviting us to participate in it. A seed has been planted from God above into Mary, who is going to give birth soon to not just the long-awaited Messiah or the son of David, but Emmanuel, God with us. A new creation story is being written a new Genesis. Let's pray.